Lord, this morning we first and foremost desire to just be impressed with your person and your personhood and who you are, that we may just automatically bow down and recognize your awesomeness and your greatness and your perfections that uh, humble us and enable us to have a better perspective on all things. So we desire this morning to see you in your word and what you reveal and what you've uh, given to us to better understand not only ourselves, but especially yourself. We desire that your spirit work amongst us to uh, enlighten our minds and our thoughts that we may truly see what you have for us this morning. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. In the book of Romans, the passage that we're looking at contains probably more theological terms than you'll find concentrated in a small place than you'll find anywhere else. A lot of these words you've probably heard, a couple of them you may have not heard very much or very often, but terms, particularly these, are very significant, and a lot of Christians couldn't give you a definition of them, so... I'm going to spend a little bit of time on a couple of them today to understand them because all of them are very significant, in fact, very, very important as well. We already spent some time looking at the idea of righteousness, and most Christians, if you ask them what does it mean, it's probably fuzzy in their thinking, so we spent some time looking at it. I've also mentioned on several occasions virtually every theological term, and I'm not aware of one that doesn't fit this description. Every theological term in the Bible is taken out of everyday life. In other words, it's just a common everyday word. They're not super spiritual words that were invented by some ivory tower theologian, first century, but all of these words come right out of the culture, and that's true of even the basic word salvation. It's used very commonly in the Old Testament of being saved from an enemy that is attacking a city. So it's a it's like a battle word, or it's a danger. It's a word that any danger that you might encounter, you escape it, you refer to it as a salvation from that tragedy. So when we bring those meanings as the foundation and basis, it helps us to understand the theological significance. So salvation, obviously, is the ultimate salvation of the greatest and ultimate danger. So that's an example. So we'll see that in the words that we're using this morning as well. We looked at the word righteousness, and we said that's a legal term, comes from the legal background. It has to do with law and standing before the law. If you have a proper standing in secular law, you could be called righteous. You have a right standing before the law. Theologically, if you have a right standing, if you are righteous, you have a right standing before God. The ultimate standard, in fact, the standard of all standards and all law. So it has that background. So if you understand that courtroom background, it helps you to understand what righteousness is. And that leads to other terms like justification that we'll look at this morning. So we're in chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. And the main theme of the whole paragraph is the righteousness of God. That's the main 
idea, and along with that, that righteousness is manifested. In other words, it has been made known, revealed, displayed, you could even say. And in fact, that's the word that I, that, that I used. Manifested, made evident. And it's the righteousness of God himself. In other words, he meets his own standard because he is the standard. And it's manifested amongst humans, amongst mankind, that's what the passage is going to get into, that righteousness of God has been granted to some, and he gives those who are involved. So that's what we're looking at. Key terms we've already looked at, law. Obviously, there's secular law. So when we talk about law, every culture has law. And there's an ultimate law as well. In other words, what God has revealed as ultimate legal standards, you might say, or legal stipulations. And that word we saw as we traced its usages can be used in a variety of ways in different contexts. I think we came up with at least eight. In the context of verse 21, it's used to refer to the Old Testament in general. I gave you the reason why I came to that conclusion. In the same verse, it's used a second time with law and prophets. And when we see that phrase, it's also the law and the prophets together refers to the entire Old Testament. But in that case, law is more specific in that it refers to the first five books and then prophets referring to the rest of the Old Testament. So we also looked at righteousness, right standing before God. That's the theological idea. We're down to verse 20. We went through verse 21. It's a display. That's the kind of the heart of the whole passage, display of justification. And remember, righteousness and justification, same Greek word, same Hebrew word. Righteousness is the noun form. Justification or some giving or declaring of righteousness Justification. We'll look at it again. We looked at it last time at the end of our time. It's the verbal form, justification. In English, we use two different words, but it's the same idea, same word. So it's displayed, righteousness, justification. They're displayed, verse 21. We have the dispensing of it. And this is how it is displayed in that it is provided or given to those that believe. It's a means by which we access that righteousness, 22 and 23. And we left off in verse 24 last time where we have a description of it, more detail in terms of how do we receive it and also what does it entail. It's going to entail things like redemption. What does that word mean? So we're going to look at that word as well. In chart form, we have a display of righteousness, kind of the overarching idea here, 21 through 26. And we have lots of little parts to it. It's apart from law. In other words, this righteousness that is manifested, you don't come into it by trying to obey the law or by doing good works that the law would specify. So it's apart from law. But it's not totally divorced from law. It's witnessed by it. In other words, you can find it in the different parts of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. You can find this righteousness at least witnessed to in uh, the Pentateuch. You can one witness the rest of the Old Testament, the second witness, 
So it's witnessed by the Old Testament. And it's provided for believers. You access it through faith. Verse 22 and 23 in chart form. These are just the parts. Trying to put the parts together so you kind of understand all of the complexities of this one sentence. One sentence from 21 through 26. So it gets real complicated and if you don't put it all together, it's hard to understand sometimes. And verse 24, we're going to look at the concept of grace. Very important element. In fact, that is worth a Sunday in itself, a study in itself. I'm going to kind of put it off because we have so many other theological terms. We'll probably look at it when we get to verses 27 through 31 because that's kind of a contrast in there. So we'll come back to that concept. I think most of you have a basic grasp of it, some of you more than others, and we'll come back and look at that in more detail. So, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, Two parts, two parts, even, in other words, the specific righteousness of God that he's talking about, the righteousness of God that is through faith. It's how we access it. The little Greek word dia, that's the means, or that's the way that we come into an experience of that righteousness. And faith always has an object in Christ Jesus for all those who believe. So it's all-inclusive It's broad in terms of believers. doesn't deal with any denomination in particular, broadly, worldwide, but believers. You have to believe, and there's no distinction. It doesn't exclude Gentiles, in which a lot of things in the Old Testament and first century had to come through Israel. This justification, this righteousness, there's no distinction. And then he reminds us of what he's talked about before, Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all stand condemned. All are without that righteousness. All are in need of that. That's chapter 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. And now verse 24, being justified. Same idea as righteousness. In other words, being in some relationship to righteousness being justified. So it's a courtroom word. We use the word being acquitted. In other words, you stand before a judge and a jury and the pronouncement is you are acquitted of the crime that you're accused of. Now, in a regular court of law, you are acquitted because you didn't commit the crime. But in the ultimate court of law, we are standing there guilty before a holy God and totally condemned with no defense and no way of changing the outcome. We are acquitted on the basis of someone else serving the prison term. Someone else satisfying the legal requirements. That's propitiation. Someone else paying the penalty. And now, not because we deserve it, that's why it's grace. We deserve to be condemned. But now we can be viewed as and even declared justified or we can be declared righteous before that holy God. That's the idea. So let's take a look at that in more detail. We can be declared not guilty even though we are guilty. So it's legal. 
Yet the law has been satisfied. The legal requirements have been satisfied. It's not God just fudging and saying, oh, I'm going to let you get away with it. That's not the biblical concept. Somebody paid the penalty on our behalf, and we can be declared, say, not guilty. The focus is on what God has done. So let's take a look at justification. We talked about this last time, but just to cement it in your minds, we'll give it to you visually. So God stands as the ultimate standard. He is perfectly righteous and perfectly holy, and a holy and righteous God cannot have dealings with anything that is less than perfection. And since we are less than perfection, in fact, far from it, we cannot have a relationship with that holy God. So we are down at the bottom of the slide. That's man's righteousness. Anything that we attempt to do is like filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. In the eyes of God and in relationship to the ultimate standard. And between God and man, there's an unbridgeable gap. No way to bridge from where we are to where God is. So I separated the two to represent an unbridgeable gap. That arrow, a broken arrow with infinity in between it. But something happened. Second Corinthians 5.21, Christ became sin on our behalf. He paid the penalty. It was as if all, well, not as if, but in reality, all of our sin was put on him, and on the cross, he paid the penalty. All that the law and all that the holy righteousness of God required, and as a result of that, we can be declared justified or righteous. And righteousness has two components to it. It has the forgiveness of sin. That's the negative. You want to think of it in Linda terms. Mathematically, the negative is removed. The unbridgeable gap is now bridged. It's removed. But there's not only a a negative removed, justification also involves the imputing of righteousness. And it's the very righteousness that is manifested. That's how it's manifested. God looks at us as if we are perfectly, not only forgiven, but perfectly righteous. We have a righteous standing before God. That's how he views us right now in our sinful bodies today from the moment that we trusted in him on. That's justification. It's just as if we had not sinned. Justification. We are acquitted. In fact, we are granted a positive, we're granted a right standing or righteousness. Now, I think it's very important that at this point, theologically, that we also understand this is an imputation. It's not God making us righteous. He is imputing, that's a mathematical accounting term, you might say. Imputation means it's put to our credit. It's deposited in our account. 
not because of anything that we did. It's not a check that we earned. It was granted to us on the basis of grace. We're undeserving of it. It is put to our account. We look at our account. Our account is full. We are rich. If you want to think of it mathematically or in terms of quantity. So that's what imputation means. To be granted to our account a righteous standing. Okay, that's different from being made righteous. We're still, we still have the sin nature. We still have the capacity to do everything that we did before we were believers. In fact, in some cases, we do even worse than before. Mary Lee. How might we see or experience a point two in, in our life? Okay, that's a very good question, Linda. Uh, We've been been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. All of the spiritual blessings are in our bank account. And using the same analogy, what we do is day by day, we write a check. In other words, we draw on that account and we begin the process of becoming, what do we call it, Christ-like. Christ is perfectly righteous. We become, moment by moment, this is the process of sanctification, another theological term that we'll talk about in the book of Romans. It's a process of becoming righteous. As we grow and we put away sin and begin to put on more of a new nature, it's a growth process. We become more and more Christ-like. The process doesn't end in this lifetime. In fact, we never reach it. The design is that we grow moment by moment to be more like Christ, more righteous. That is becoming righteous. Right now, we are declared righteous, and we are viewed from God's perspective as if we have already arrived. We're viewed in Christ as if we were righteous like Christ. He looks at us from the perspective of where we will be. That's what justification is, which is a tremendous thought, because we know our hearts and our, our nature. Connie? You see this in the fact that we never have something else. Right. So can expect to look here. Yes, exactly. And what you're expressing is Second Peter 1, 3, that, We've been granted all things for life and godliness. In other words, in our spiritual bank account, we have everything that we need. And part of that is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Part of that is the new nature. Part of that is God's word that is a lamp to our feet, a guide, a resource to be able to enable us to live moment by moment. Okay? That's justification. Linda? Sort of justification is about a sidetrack. That's the first impulse if somebody accuses me. Yeah! Justified. Right. That was probably given us and solved so we wouldn't kill ourselves or something. (laughs) I mean, that form of of mutated righteous Self-defense. Self-defense. Making it seem right, even though you right. know you're wrong. Exactly. Because it's so horrible. That it has to be right. so horrible. That's exactly so what... so horrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what Jesus 
accuse the whom in the first century? Right, the religious leaders. The religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, and others. He accused them of that self-righteous attitude or self-justifying attitude. That's what he's condemning. That's filthy rags. He was condemning their filthy rags. Got it? So that's justification. Think of two things. The removal of sin from God's perspective, not the removal of the sin nature, but total and complete forgiveness of all sin, past, present, and future. We are totally forgiven. So then that removes the shame that we carry because we know that we are unrighteous. And That's it right. It's removal of that shame. Shame from, and guilt. Well, the guilt has been taken care of and the shame is lifted so that we can then move into an ever-growing relationship with him. Right. Exactly. So, we're put on a new footing, if you will. We are viewed as, and in fact, stand before God as righteous because it is put to our account. So that's the second thing. So think of the two, complete forgiveness and imputing of righteousness. Now, we won't look it up, but this is illustrated, where is it? Uh, Zechariah 3, I believe, where, oh, I'm trying to remember. Is it Joshua? Not Joshua from the book of Joshua, but another Joshua. You got it there? Connie, why don't you look it up? Maybe even read it. Three first few verses there. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. There you go. That's it. Read it loud. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his going. Keep going. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuked you, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. And filthy garments. Joshua clothed in filthy garments. That's his righteousness. Filthy garments. Keep reading. Um, now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments, and he, and he answered and to those who were before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. Okay, that is what? Taking away of the filthy garments? Sin. Forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin. And to him he said, See, I have removed your from you, and I will clothe you. Rich robes, what's that? Righteousness. Imputing of righteousness. <laughs> so it illustrates justification. So the next verse says, And I said, Let him put clean turban on his head, a clean turban on clothes on him. Okay, clothing. So that's a complete picture. The removal of the filthy rags, forgiveness of sin, and in that passage, iniquity is used. And the putting on of clean garments, new garments, that's the imputing of righteousness. So iniquity is the same thing as sin? Um, it's in the same category. It might have some specific nuances okay, that so are slightly the different. the category is sin, yeah. one of the components is iniquity. Exactly. Yep. Okay. And this is a common theme. This idea of... Righteousness as a garment is a theme in other places. Isaiah 11.5 Righteousness will be the belt about your loins and faithfulness about belt about your waist. Kind of a garment there. Isaiah 61.10 I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of what might you expect? Salvation, exactly. Garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. See the imagery? 
So it's more than just the negative remove, it's a positive added. And he says, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. So it's clothing. And the book of Revelation, a reference to the body of Christ, in Revelation 19, 7 and 8, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the church or the body of Christ will, in fact, enter into a ceremony with Jesus Christ himself. What chapter was that? Revelation 19, verse 7 through 8. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And then verse 8, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. What is that? That's living the life faithful to Jesus Christ. It's putting on what we have deposited in our account. That's sanctification. That is growing. And that happens as a process. It'll be completed when we go to be with him. We will be perfectly righteous. We will be made righteous. We call that glorification, where the sin nature is removed. Never to be tempted, never to do anything wrong again. Be completely like Christ. That's glorification. That is being made righteous. We're in the process of being made righteous as we grow. Okay? Which leads us, what's James talking about in James chapter 2? Remember, he's talking about a justification of works. We have a contradiction here. Well, we can't. Scripture is inspired. So what are we, what's going on in James? James is dealing with a totally separate issue than what Paul is dealing with. Paul is dealing with how do we enter into righteousness. It's by faith and by faith alone, apart from the law, apart from anything that we can do. Anything that we can do is filthy rags. And it doesn't bridge the gap. That's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the situation of an unbeliever coming into that initial relationship with God. James is talking about a different justification that is by works. And the book of James is written also to believers. Now, Romans is written to believers, but he's explaining the situation of the unbeliever to the believer in Romans. James is addressing a believing audience, and he's talking about living that life. In other words, If you are truly justified, now James doesn't say this, but if you are truly justified by faith and faith alone, what James is saying, then that should be reflected in your life. Got it? And what he's talking about is a justification that is visible, that others can see, and they can say, oh, okay, I can see that that person, and we're declaring that person must be related to a holy God because of the way they live. That's the justification in the eyes of the observer, where they can see that justification because that person is growing. Make sense? So James and Paul are talking about two different things. 
James is talking about the process of being able to see. And when people see that, they can say, they can declare that person is righteous or that person has a process of growth toward righteousness at least. So it's justified in the eyes of the ones that may be observing in a lost world. Does that make sense? And all of the parts of James will make sense if you have that basic perspective. So that's justification. We have another key term. Justification is the forgiveness of sin and the declaration of righteousness. Summation of the last slide there. Okay, it's as a gift, being justified as a gift. You can't earn it. Our righteousness is filthy rags. In fact, some versions, it's probably better translated freely or without cost. The same word that is used there is in other contexts referring to acquiring something without cost, free, a gift. It's not the noun form, but the noun form of that same word that is there is translated a gift, something that is given freely. And if that's not clear enough, it's by his grace. It's totally undeserved, cannot be earned. It's by grace. We'll come back to that concept because it's important also in living the life as well. So another key term we can add here, undeserved favor. Lots of theological terms here. Cannot earn it, undeserved. In fact, we deserve condemnation. That is what is deserved. Instead, we are wiped clean, we are totally forgiven, and we are credited with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies or God's righteousness put to our credit. It's undeserved. So let's add to our parts here. It's for believers. It's by grace, a gift given without effort, without earning it. And this is very, very important. And the next part of the verse is going to emphasize through Jesus Christ. Very important. In fact, you might say the rest of the passage expands what Jesus has done. Okay, the last part of verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Let's take a look at the term redemption in the time that we have remaining. This is another word that is taken out from the, the culture. So let's see that background. Redemption. First of all, the, the terms. And if you survey the terms that are translated to redeem or have this idea, this concept, there are several of them. There are two major ones in the Old Testament. And the New Testament ones come right out of, in other words, we have Jewish believers, Paul being Jewish. He's writing. He is saturated with the Old Testament. He knows these terms from the Old Testament, and he's choosing Greek words that, in fact, reflect the same idea that you can see in the New Testament as well. So let's look at these terms. One of them is ga'al. Ga'al has the basic idea to redeem. And I'm going to give you some passages that give you kind of that non-theological sense when we get to the end of this list here. Another Hebrew word, pada, in parentheses, we've got the English transliteration, to ransom something, 
or to redeem. It also has that basic idea. Two Hebrew words, very common. In fact, I can't remember over a hundred times the two of them together in the Old Testament. And then it corresponds to agarazo, to buy something. So what kind of a term is this? And by the way, it has the same idea in the Old Testament, the idea of buying something from something sometimes. To buy. You women like this word. This is the shopping center word. <laughs> what is the agora? The agora is Coronado Center. The agora was the first century Coronado Center where you'd have little tables set up and people had their goods and the crops that they raised or the things that they made. you go from table to table and buy whatever you want to. It was like a shopping center. That's the agora. So agorazo has the idea of going to a shopping center to buy, the verbal idea. So there's some noun forms as well. There's also a compound word where you put Ek before it. In Greek, it's out of or out from. So exagorazo is to buy out of something. So you have these two basic words in the New Testament. There's also another one, lutrao, has the idea of to ransom as well, or also to redeem. So these two are, and these could be used in the commercial area, just purchasing in fact, agorazo is most commonly in the New Testament. It's only used theologically only a few times, two or three times. And in many other contexts, it's used in the sense of going out and buying something. I'll give you some examples. Going out, buying food, buying land, buying oxen, whatever you need it. It's a word to buy. So you women can remember that one. You're going to the uh, agora to... Do some adorazion or whatever. Okay. So those are the terms. Now, lutrao comes from the basic idea of to set something loose. The simple basic root is to release something or set something loose. But lutrao has a particular setting. Another thing that you could go to a marketplace and buy was a slave in the first century. So exagorazo is the idea of buying out from slavery. If you were buying a slave, you're buying him out of it. In other words, taking him out of a slave condition and now putting him under your Would, would home. it be the same? If, if you're buying him to be a slave in your house, you wouldn't be buying him out. But you might, like uh, the Roman, somebody asked Paul, did you buy your citizenship or did you... Uh, exactly, yeah. Yeah, that idea as well. Right. Buying citizenship. Right. And lutrao has somewhat of the same idea. In other words, you're setting somebody loose, now they're free. You're buying them so that you set them loose. So the same idea. That's the background to those terms. Let's take a look at how they're used. In the Old Testament, let's look these up. Who's got somebody get Leviticus 2533 real quick? We're running out of time. Craig's got it. You want to get Exodus 6, honey, and do 15 as well. Somebody Deuteronomy 7, okay. You got Leviticus 25, 33. Leviticus 25, 33. In fact, there are several in that passage. And if a man purchased of the Levites, then the house that was sold, 
in the city of his possession shall go out in the year for the house of the cities of the Levites are their procession. Okay, that's part of the idea of, in that context, the idea of, of buying a house. So it's just in its commercial sense. Can you skip to 48, 49, another item there, and there's several other things in there. Okay, 48. After that, he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him. 49. That's that Ga'al idea, redeemed. Either his uncle or his own son may redeem him, or any that is nigh of kin unto him, his family may redeem him. Okay, now that's the idea of redeeming a person and sometimes land and property. The book of Ruth, the main theme of the book of Ruth, is this idea of recovering or buying, in in the case of uh, people in that context. Remember the book of Ruth is all about a woman. There's a famine in Israel. They go... Her and her family, they go to Moab, which is across the river, foreign land at that time. And the sons marry Moabite women. And the husband of Naomi dies and the two sons die. So now you have three women that are very vulnerable because they are women, for one thing. And they don't have protection. They don't have husbands. So Naomi chooses to go back to Israel, her land. Ruth, being a Moabitess, wants to go with her and wants to make her God, her God, her people, her people. And when she comes back, there's another individual that has first choice over the property of Naomi's dead husband. He has the option to buy that property back, and he has to take the family back, and now he will support that family. That's the idea of buying back something that was lost. There's somebody that's a closer goel, if you will, a closer kinsman, a closer relative that has prior rights. Boaz, he, he has to check with the closer relative, and he says, no, you can have it. I yield my rights to you. So he buys back. So part of that is to support those vulnerable women, at least the two that went back. And that's the story of Ruth, where she is purchased back. And he marries her to support her, raises children on behalf of her children. That's the whole idea of buying back when it comes to individuals as well. That's behind the Leviticus passage. Now the Exodus 6.6, 6. you want to get that one, Connie? Therefore say the children of Israel, I am... I will bring you out of them. I will rescue their bondage. Redeem you. Okay? That's the Ga'al. God is redeeming a people and taking possession of them to provide and support them. This is the Exodus experience. It's a buying out from bondage, from slavery. So also is 1513. Got it, Connie? 13. Your mercy has led people redeemed. your Okay, whom he has redeemed, referring to the Israelites. So that's 15, 13. Okay. Deuteronomy 7, 8. Now, those first ones, those are Ga'al, and I think the Deuteronomy 7, 8 is Pada. Okay. Got it? No, yes, you have to tell me. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. 
that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the of Pharaoh king. Buying out of Egyptian slavery. That's the background. That's the idea. Now it's starting to transition into a theological idea when it deals with the nation of Israel. Though That's the background, but it's a buying out. A price was paid, if you will. When you get to the New Testament, the literal usage, John 4, 8, we won't read it for the sake of time, but if you want to write it down, Jesus sends the disciples into the village to what? And Adorazzo is used to buy food while he's talking to the woman at the well. There's an example of buying food. The Luke 14, 18 and 19 also deals with buying just material stuff. That's Adorazzo. Going to the shopping center, buying something literally. And by the way, most of the usages of Adorazzo are, are in that particular context. And then it's used theologically in 1 Corinthians 6.20. We need to read that one. Somebody get it. And while you, Mary Lee's got 6 and 7. Somebody else get Galatians. Who wants to do Galatians real quick? Jeremy, do Galatians 3. So 1 Corinthians 6.20. Mary Lee's got it. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Okay, we as believers have been bought with a price. That's agrazo. That's the idea of buying out of what? Bondage. We have been bought out of bondage to sin with a price. What's the price? The death of Christ. It cost God something. It's by grace to us, we receive it free, but it was not free, it was costly. So that's the idea of redemption. 723, got that one? Yeah. You were bought with a price, do not become slaves of men. Don't go back to be slaves, you've been bought out of it. And it was costly. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone. From the curse, we are redeemed or bought out of the curse, Christ becoming that curse on the cross. That's the price. So it cost God and Christ. So that's a theological idea, but it comes from that slave background and that idea of buying and it's costly. It's a commercial idea. Okay, so we have another theological term. Redemption is buying out of slavery. And what does that imply? That implies that we as believers belong to someone else. We belong to someone else. That's why Paul calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. But we are a slave in freedom. Because the price has been paid. Which is in Christ Jesus. And he's going to expand that in the next verse that we'll pick up next week. A final thought here. Redemption means we have been bought at a great cost, and now we belong to him. That's the idea of redemption. So be reminded that we're not of our own. We're the possession of someone else. And that is, that is very freeing. That's ultimate freedom as well. He wants to Close for us. Father, we do thank you and praise you for 
helping us to grasp terms that can slide off our tongue without understanding what they mean. Words have meaning. Words have power to them. Words have power to enslave and to set free. That as we ponder your words to us, we will take them as a pawn to ourselves and we will allow you to be in the process of transforming us, of sanctifying us, turning us from abject slaves into joyful bond slaves of your brain that you would be a part. So we commit this to your sons. Amen.